0: is Ungagged Interviews with Neil Anderson. This session, we are discussing myself and Jenny Hassan, who is a writer, commentator and thinker about Scotland, the UK, politics and ideas. He is currently professor of social change at Glasgow Caledonian University and was previously a senior research fellow in contemporary Scottish history at Dundee University. invited him along to talk to Ungagged about his recently published book, Scotland Rising, The Case for Independence. You know that Ungagged is pro-Scottish independence, right? (coughs) I hope you've noticed that. Jerry, hello. Hello there. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm doing very well. It's a a cold December night, you know, but it's December in Scotland, and uh, so I'm doing fine, really,
0: all things considered. So um, just to start with, can you give us, I don't know the term is, a, a placie or whatever of what um, you have got in the, the book, mm. um, Scotland Rising? Scotland Rising. Well, right, that's great. We can put that on our, on our logo for the, the, pod, the podcast, the image for the podcast.
1: I know. So there it is there a, for, for the podcast, Scotland Rising, the case for no. independence. And, you know, so a couple of things just as an introduction on on why I wrote this book and what I was trying to do. Firstly, there are very few books out, um, despite the fact in contemporary times, you know, since the SNP won in 2011, 2014, subsequent, there's very few books explicitly on exploring the case for independence. There was only in the 2014 campaign, two books came out, um, you know, absolutely kind of like unambiguously, exploring the case for independence. One by the late Stephen Maxwell, um, after, after, after he passed away, that um, was edited by, by his son, Jamie, um, Arguments for Independence. And then there was another one published by by, by people associated with radical independence. Um, and I, I thought then that was a bit strange, and some people, that's even stranger. And there's a, another um, add-on to that. But since 2014, there's been more books published making the case for the union. Um, which is kind of revealing in a way that, that, that I, I take as a kind of defensive argument and they need to be restating that, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought, given there is an active issue, given there's a live independence movement, given this independence needs work to do and also not to be seen as synonymous with the SNP, um, that there, there's, there's a whole terrain uh, and and kind of community for um, writing um, and producing Scotland Rising, the case for independence.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that's very i i i didn't know anything about that statistic, but there'd be more books published on keeping the union than independence since the referendum mm. okay maybe maybe we've got them worried <laughs> i
1: i think i think it is i think it is part of that that i mean i think let me just put it this way. i think the case for independence has to be one. By that I mean it doesn't happen by default. Change has to make the case. We're like the, the existing order just doesn't collapse practically anywhere, and then and then you know the, the positive change happens. But what what you what you're seeing in in that point about books on the union is that the case for the union um is is in crisis. Um, and they used to think it was kind of like, you know, an automatic case, a kind of like but it didn't even have to be stated. It would win by, by by default, basically. It was the natural order of things. And so you've got that going on. But I but I do think this is one thing, two things I point with independence won't win by default. The case for independence has work to do. Um, mm-hmm. and really, really in that, um, also one of the points, central points I make in the book, which um I, I have heard lots of independence supporters say to me over the years since 2014, there is no case for the union. And I have heard from pro-union friends I have had, have, have, (laughs) uh, that there is no case for independence. And I wanted to, like, really challenge that by saying, there is a case for independence, obviously, it's got work to do, but there is a case for the union. And an actual fact, even though it's getting weaker, it aids independence to understand that because understanding your opponents means A, the debate will be more more of a high quality, etc. And B, it gives you more chance, if you understand your opponents, of, of defeating them, basically. So understanding your opponents and their arguments is always a position of strength and a good thing.
0: Indeed. Uh, I mean, there's, I, I have no idea where, it, where, it, where the, the quote is, but there is that really old quote of know thine enemy, yeah. isn't there? Totally. You know, if you don't, know. if you don't know what your enemy or your opponent, don't want to speak to pro pro unions as enemies, but opponent. Yes, exactly. You know how to defeat them. Yeah, That's right. and there's,
1: there's, there's a. I mean, he he had he had many, many mistakes he made in in his political and public life. But Robert McNamara, who was Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson's Secretary of State for Defense, he has a point in the film he makes called "The Fog of War," looking back on the mistakes he made, like Vietnam, obviously, and so. On. And he says, never, never dehumanize your opponents. Always, always, if you can try and empathise with them, and he says that that's one of the fundamental mistakes, I mean, it's a much more serious issue in mean, the way, that Americans made in Vietnam, they completely dehumanised and, and d- thus didn't understand the Vietnamese and you know, the fact it was a cause for national liberation. But it's a point true in all you know, much lesser conflicts of which, was, yes. which, which most, most political conflicts in the West are much lesser than, than the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, but it's just a profoundly, you know, deep insight. And as you know, on all sides of political debate, some people some people feel that some people hate Tories so much they can't understand Toryism. Um, and you know, I, I I I do I do understand why people have that view of tourism, But you have to you have to you have to. We live on an island where loads of people are set of islands where both people vote Tory. You have to try and understand them. Same is true of issues like independence and these big big political, uh, you know, moments of change. Ah,
0: uh-huh. yeah. Um, And I think in in doing that, it it probably in that way helps you understand yourself a bit more as well, or the the cause that you're you're fighting for. If you can look into the other side and find out what their thoughts are that should give people pause to think about themselves or to think about whichever group uh, that's in there as well.
1: Uh-huh. It's also true about when, when Scotland. I mean, I mean, I explored this in the book that Scotland isn't quite a 50-50 nation, this because a, we're not, we're not two tribes facing each other. Secondly, there's lots of shades of grey between 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 yes and no, and and then also there's lots of change going on underneath. But if you understand the case that is for the union, it allows you to. The case to again, this runs throughout the whole book. or tr- I try to make it run throughout the whole book. For independence to win, it isn't like the the most um the most absolutely certain argument or, or the most passionate narrow argument of independence wins. with go over. You win by by understanding that, that there's different gradations of people that vote no. And there's lots and lots of soft no voters who we know from lots of survey evidence quite actually like the idea of independence, but then they have various like, you know, concerns and things like that. So there's a kind of issue about, you know, how the language independence speaks and how it needs to speak to, to get from, you know, from where it went previously to where it's got to to then get to, you know, the sunny uplands, in a sense, of of a, of a convincing majority, requires kind of different languages. And this is something I, I really, I mean, when I speak to people about this around the country, I think most people most people really, really um, get this. Independence is sitting in a place where it, is, it has had lots of successes. It has come from the margins of Scottish life as an idea, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, it's come centre stage, um, probably inarguably, you know, the defining issue of Scottish politics. It put on significant support in the independence referendum. It's banked that and kept that, and it's added more as well subsequently. Maybe not as much as you know, lots of people would want, but it, these are historic successes and gains. And then yeah. it, success requires, like all success, you know, thinking differently because that requires has you know, different expectations, different challenges. How you how you get to a winning majority is different from how you went from twenty-five, twenty-eight percent roughly to, to forty-five plus, you know. Um and so that's one of the things I try try and get over um
0: in the book. Excellent. I certainly know um a, a number of people that would want Scottish independence, but are going well, and the, the, the biggest one that people come out with, the biggest fear that they have is Scotland can't survive financially on its own. That's the biggest reason of people that I know that um, w- would like to see an independent Scotland, but wouldn't vote for it because of that fear.
1: Yeah, I think I think that there is that that fear is tapped into a number of things. One is there's the fear, the kind of financial issue of the, the, the you know there's a transfer of monies goes on between the UK government and Scotland, and and the nature of that obviously is argued by so There's a fiscal transfer. Based on the fact that United Kingdom was such an unequal kingdom, and um, there's fiscal transfers from the core centre to all all the parts of of the UK from out with that centre. So that in independence stops. That then has issues of transition and how Scotland then manages that. And so you've got that going on, and then you've got practicalities like you know pensions, mortgages, and so on. And um, and so Scotland economic. One of the things I get over in the book is, um, things like. Very, very simplistic figures work in politics, very simple messaging work, like like the fact that the pro-union opinion goes on about you know the £1,900 per head transfer, the infamous example in recent times of the £350 million on the red bus in Brexit. And one of the things I worry about is, and and, and I've, I've spoken to a number of soft no voters on this, is that is that yes needs to have simp- simple headline figures that are counters to that, Otherwise, because what happens is or those become framing devices, like the 350 million pound red Brexit bus was everyone kind of knew in the campaign, dishonest, but but Dominic Cummings et al. used it as a fact that it became a framing device and in a reference point, it was then raised, even though it was dismissed. And so yeah. independents will have to have figures which are. I mean, one of the things I mentioned, which is the sort of things that independence needs to do work on, the UK economy is much, much bigger than what we measure it as. And I'm not just talking about GDP here. I'm talking about the offshore UK economy, which is huge global capitalism, and into all sorts of offshore accounts, shell companies and so on. And and Danny Darling, Oxford, has estimated this could be seven times, not could be, is seven times, rather, the size of GDP. Now, Scotland's economy is... The, the offshore economy is is slightly smaller percentage wise, multiple wise than the UK one because City of London versus Edinburgh, another financial centre. But he estimated it could be four times the size of, of the Scottish economy. Know of, we know of so wow. we need, we need we need work done on this. You know we need we need in the SNP or in universities or in various places of expertise. That's just one example where we need to come up with some figures that measure the Scottish economy and and say, well, this Scottish economy, is there X percentage of it there? I mean, it's like the work done by the STUC today on, on, on you know, figures for the Scottish wealth tax. We need figures that are proper figures we can put into the domain that are actually simple, measurable, and can challenge the dominant narrative, basically.
0: Indeed. I um, have read a few things recently that really made me think about the figures for the economy. I mean, how do I get them? Where does it come from? What does it, you know, how do you actually calculate that? And there was one article that quoted, I can't remember the name of the think tank, the think tank, to that phrase, that had said that the UK government had changed the formula for calculating the economy in January. And that now we have a 50 billion black hole in deficit, by 50 billion. If you use the formula that they used in January and last year, would would be four fourteen billion in um in, in plus.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as as people like Paul Mason and others have said, I mean, the, the fifty billion plus uh, figure uh, fiscal black hole is is a kind of ideological um construct. And it's I mean i think it's partly aided by um there is, there is obviously the dominance of a certain view of the world economically and, and, and a certain view of the capitalist world and then there's influence of neoliberalism. Then there's the idea of household economics, which is then traded in. And, and the, the strength of an ideology, as you know, is when it's referenced without people even understanding it's an ideology. Um, And that's that's the world we have lived in in the last 40 years, which yeah. Bachelorism gave gave strength to and so on. But you see people using it because the household, you know, the idea of household economics as the economy is is a simple way if if you don't really understand it, you know, it's a simple way of being able to understand the economy, but it happens to be completely, completely and utterly inaccurate. Um huh. and in, and then the fiscal hole as as how it's being used to to again bring in you know austerity 2.0 is is really um problematic. And the voices who challenge are um who are if, Economists or who have an economic literacy or are few and far between, basically. I think, obviously, like, you know, the example being the Labour Party have completely gone along with that, that version of uh, the finances, UK finances.
0: Uh, and going back to the, the household economy thing with the austerity, they said, oh, your household isn't in debt, everyone, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, uh, no, excuse me, mine is, <laughs> I've got a mortgage. Yeah. And, you, and I might have a car loan, or I might have a loan for home improvement. And yeah. that's what the does as well. It borrows money, and it pays it back. You know, so we didn't talk about that bit where a household, yes, is in debt, because there's an awful lot of people paying for mortgages or for car loans or whatever other loans that they pay
1: exactly, out. Exactly, exactly. In that way, which we, I mean, through our adult lives of the last 40 years, we have all been either encouraged or forced or cajoled to, to engage in a kind of financialization of our lives. That is how I think partly the 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 the, the neoliberal construct settlement has has you know Enticed and entrapped us in a way. Whether it's mortgages, whether it's like you know buying things on loan, etc., or how we think of our pensions and so on, there is a way in which that order has tried to remodel us as as not obviously as citizens, but as consumers in 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 markets where you know you meant to have choice, but very little real real choice at all. And and it is a world that is like you know it's a pretty. Horrendous world in loads of ways. We have a little bit more choice in lots of ways, um, but it's not, it's not, it's not an edifying or sustainable um, world economic um, order. Yeah, uh, no, it definitely
0: is. No, it, um, and that's what we're headed today. Obviously. The, the, you say for the, the last time that you're, you're living in sort of the and
1: Gallery type area. Last I last know, we are in the constituency of Alistair Jack, the, 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 I
0: the
1: call great state for Scotland, uh, who is obviously like, you know, getting wrapped, just, we obviously get linked to this in a way, is going to go up to the House of Lords after the after the next election, you know. And so we've got, we've got a kind of like, you know, Absentee landlord uh, MP, you know, it's... Um, uh, one, one thing here that's interesting just to is, and I'm just saying this to, to Robin McAlpine um, there, this afternoon, is that we were talking about DNG and um the Tories are quite unpopular in DNG and and the SNP are quite unpopular as well. And so there's a view of, like, kind of plague on both your houses here, in a way, in terms of the governments, um, uh, that, that makes you think there's a terrain here to be won. There's an older Labour vote... I don't mean older as in people, I just mean older as in decades ago. There's an older way of a it growth sort of disappeared, but you can still feel about. about, um, and, you know, given things that may come back,
0: you know. So, and the reason I was saying that is, just like I don't know if you cover it in your book, but you'll, you'll, you'll know something, <laughs> you'll have views on it, is about, um, you know, hopefully when we get our independence back, there'll be a border with Scotland, and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that is another fear that people have about independence. One for the, I suppose, the freedom of movement, where somebody might live in Carlisle and work in Dumfries, or the other way around, and also for about, you know, trade with the rest of the UK. Do you think um, uh, that there would be tariffs, or would there, would there be an agreement to have the border? The
1: border is is one of the. The fundamental issue, the border um, and 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 Barnett and, um, and what there's a couple of points. Here. One is the nature of a border, which of course, in a way, what we're talking about really in a way pre independence vote is we're talking about it as a kind of being used as a, as a, shib- a shibboleth or a or a, or a totem basically. We're being used in a way; it's a spectre of you know the hard border rising. The nature of the border depends on a couple of things, which is one: if Scotland goes into the EU, then then that does the issue of of you know, it could be like an issue like, like obviously the Northern Irish border. Secondly, there's the nature of England stroke our UK after the Union. And because some people who are arguing against Scottish independence pose it and, and in an independent Scotland, that our UK stroke England might want to punish Scotland and make it as difficult as possible. And, that, and so there's a very funny line there about the most pessimistic interpretation of the most nasty version of England possible is like for for remaining in a union. And and I even had a couple of pro union friends said this to me in the independence referendum. That they that one of the reasons they were against independence was that that they feared what England would do stroke R-U-K after an independence effort, and it could even be worse to us than they were to the Irish. The Irish post-22, not, not pre-22. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I say that's that beggar's belief. But it, but the point is, I think there's a couple of things. One is that there is, there is work needing done on some of this detail. Secondly, the, the argument for the union, like I was saying about all these books on the union, the argument for the union has become very much based, certainly until until Gordon Brown's you know, initiative, we can get to it, based on a defensive argument about about the kind of traps or 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 you know the what independence may fall over in terms of details like the border like Barnet, etc um or like EU membership and I think that is a defensive argument in many ways concedes that independence in principle is a good thing and, and what I think with that is that you never win an argument in the long run by conducting a defensive a defensive case and and in that until Brown there has been no attempt by the pro union forces to to strategically reset the the agenda, uh, and and Brown is an attempt to do that. But I think, in a way, it's it's it, you know, for loads and loads of reasons. It's a halfway house that isn't really trying to isn't trying very convincingly to reset the agenda. And so I think the union argument, that's a big big problem for the union argument. But that's not to say those issues are not things independence might you know trip over um, to quite an extent because they are they are issues for both. Right,
0: and. Um... One of the the kind of questions that Sandra kind of put last night in the messaging was about basically where would the border be? Would we just take it as it is now, or would you have to look into it historically because uh, you know over uh, centuries it has kind of moved up and down a bit.
1: I think I think you start with border. I mean, the border. The, 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 there's international law on this and an international precedent that the. the for when, when nations, you know, like the like, Czech and Slovak republics or or um, the Baltic nations in the Soviet Union, et cetera. And, I mean, there's, you know, we started off with 50, 1945, was 51 or something, 52 independent nations, we're now at 194. Um, we've got a lot of precedent, we've got a lot of international case law, we've got 30-plus independence referendums have happened in the world. The only two countries that didn't vote for it are uh, Quebec and Scotland, you know, um, and... <laughs> And, uh, I mean, there's interesting examples of the two countries in the world vote for independence and didn't take it, uh, which I found out in the 2014 referendum, and uh, better together never found out, which was Western Australia voted for independence in, in the 30s, and by a massive of And then the Faroe Islands in 45, 46 voted by 50.5% to 49.5% for independence. And then decided because it was such a narrow majority not to take it, but to but to have an, a a maximal form of home rule in in in, in Denmark. Um, so Actually, that
0: didn't help with the Brexit vote.
1: I know, I know. So you've got the border would be as it is it is at the moment. I mean, because you've got examples that are terrible examples, like when Northern Ireland was created in 1921-22, the border that the British government drew was then going to be re-amended subsequent to partition. By a by a boundary. That boundary commission never ever finally reported ever. Um, and hence that that temporary border. Because they're gonna they're gonna try and iron it out, you know, various roads and so on and um, communities, but it never happened. And so I think I think the precedent would be and, and the international press that's our border. And and one of the interesting things about Scotland is, is there's, there's two things. Scotland's actually well, Scotland's a small country in some ways, but half million people we're one third of the landmass of the uk we, we have a huge percentage of the coast of the uk because of all of our inlets and walks and so on and we have a huge maritime waters in terms of when you look at the map of scotland and you look at our boundaries maritime going out into the north atlantic we are a sizable nation uh, with huge resources and also one of these points i try and go over in the book is this is not just a debate about us this is not even just a debate about the uk our debate matters internationally because of where we sit in the northwest corner of Europe, we are a debate with real consequences in terms of, like, you know, the geopolitics of the world, the North Atlantic, and the nuclear weapon. And that means that means how we decide, and in what we decide, and the nature of our independence really, really has consequences. And that gives us, you know, it's a challenge, but that gives us influence as well in in the corridors of power around the world.
0: Right. One of the, the things that some people talk about and certainly well-known personality, writer, etc., Owen Jones, doesn't want Scotland to be independent because it would lose links with socialists in England. For instance, socialists in England would be weak, weaker if Scotland wasn't there.
1: Yeah, I do, I do understand that argument um, and, and I do understand the left argument of it put by people like Owen Jones. Owen, on the plus points, because Owen's got, you know, it says a lot of things that are good and I respect him for, he does make the case that Scotland has a right to self-determination. Scotland has a right to decide its own future. So he accepts that and he thinks all socialists and the Labour movement should really embrace that right of self-determination. So that's a big plus point. But where he goes with the other argument, which I do understand, is and it's, it's a one that a large part of English progressive opinion um embraced, like say Polly Toynbee at The Guardian, The Guardian itself as a paper, which is that the, there's a kind of fearness about being left as England. Um, and you know, never mind what happens to Wales and Northern Ireland in this but there's this fearness that Eng- English folk are so conservative or you know can be um hoodwinked by by Tory propaganda that somehow taking Scotland away. And, and potentially maybe Wales as well at some point, is they're left to their own devices of the horrible reactionary conservative impulses of English people. Now, I don't buy that at all, because, because England, since 1945, has only once voted majority vote for the Tories, 1955. That's the same year the Tories won a majority of the vote, as everyone knows practically in Scotland, and the falls in 1955 as well, because Anthony Eden, before he blew himself up with the, the Suez War, <laughs> was very popular. He was he was Churchill's glamour boy, you know, and all that, and he'd been waiting for years to become Prime Minister. So he became Prime Minister, called an election, won, you know, the, the highest Tory vote percentage-wise in, um, in post-war times, 49 point, 49.7% in the UK vote, and he won a majority in Scotland and a majority in England. The point being, the Tories have, have won a minority of the vote in every other of those 20-odd general elections, and the first-past-the-post system uh, divided opposition, and, and you know... <laughs> the limitations of labour in England have have allowed the Tories to be the dominant political force, and yeah. I, I don't buy this pessimism because it also implies that if Scotland left UK, that somehow the status quo of politics would just trundle on down south. That it wouldn't be a cathartic moment. That somehow they might think, well, hang on a second, they've left, you know, and forces for change, positive change, might come to the fore because uh-huh. if, if, if we matter to them, and and we do. Yeah, because some some independent people think like they not really want to keep us for the nukes, or 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 as a colony, or something. Scotland matters to the UK political elites and English political opinion because it feeds into this like greater idea of the UK. If we leave, it's a huge, huge moment for them. It's it's a it's a part humiliation. It's a loss. It's a it's a it's a major moment in international politics, and it's a wake-up call. Um, which would be a disruption, a potential disruption for good. So I don't buy, um, Owen Jones is a soft version of this, but I don't, I don't buy the wider,
0: sometimes I think worse version of it. And there, you've mentioned twice about nuclear weapons in Scotland. Mm. Do you think that, you know, when, hopefully, we get our independence, that we can easily tell the rest of the UK uh, Royal Navy to take their submarines away from Scotland, do you think oh. that that would be easy, or do you think there'd be some kind of large fight? Well, it wouldn't be a
1: fight, and it's not it's not it's not quite easy either. It's, it, but but it's possible, you know. He, this is the, this is a point I put over that sometimes annoys some folk in, in like CND and and the anti-nuclear movement. I don't know why it should annoy them. Scottish independence means, that in terms of nuclear weapons, there is a negotiation. There has to be a negotiation how they leave, because, because there are so many issues that happen um, in terms of the, the transfer, the, you know, the leaving of those nuclear weapons. There's, the, there's the, the nuclear sites, there's the decontamination, there's the management of the nuclear weapons and the sites in the transition period as well. For instance, like you know, the maritime waters. Scotland becomes independent. The maritime waters of Faslane are then used by, by, by the nuclear weapons of a different state, that That is something that we need to be managed by something like, say for a period, a joint authority, an authority that had Scottish representation and in some way you know representation of our UK. So that 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 means negotiation and and, and everybody kind of actually that has a, you know informed expert opinion on this recognises from parts of the British establishment to Scottish CND did a report on this a couple of years ago. And what it gets down to is a couple of things of really, doing way is the timing of how quickly it takes place. So that's that's where there's quite a big debate. But Scotland can become um, you know, a non-nuclear power. It would be fantastic in those discussions. Uh, but this is not up to us, obviously. That the UK became a non-nuclear power. Uh, something I think that might not happen. But they have big they have big issues about where where the nuclear weapons go because there doesn't seem to be um, anywhere um, else they can go for, for for now. And and what 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 it does offer again, which gets into very very controversial territory for some, is that for the nuclear weapons remaining in Scotland for a period, is that we gain from that. We would gain, you know, whatever number of years it was before they left, we would gain certain advantages, i.e. like maybe a reduction in our debt, or, or, you know, or or issues on the border or something. And there are again other examples of this. When Ireland left the UK in the negotiations, the UK state said, well, you'll be taking a portion of the debt, you know, we, we know this argument, and ended up that Ireland took basically next to no debt and, yeah. and basically escaped debt free because they leased back three naval ports on the on the the western um, oh, right. coast of Ireland oh. uh, from 1923 and then in 1937 1938. This is just as we approach the Second World War. Neville Chamberlain gave them back um, when when this is when the British state didn't have to, but they they agreed to come back and there was you know a deal done. Uh, oh. Much to the fury of lots of Tory politicians. So there's lots and lots of permutations here and. I guess this 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 gets into a bigger point about, about my book, which is Scottish independence has big, you know, big asks in it. It has it has the work needing done to 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 fine-tune an independence offer to speak to the Scotland to be convinced, which I think is possible. And then, which really needs to begin probably before the vote, there's the upskilling and resourcing of all, all, the, all the expertise and, you know, um, like we will need to, to run um, an independent Scotland, which, you know, we have barely begun on. But that's A, lots of other countries in the world of minds in less advantageous positions than us. And, and given, you know, we're a developed, advanced capital society and what we've contributed to the world, you know, I, I think it's a pretty good,
0: good judgment, you could say. We can do it, you know. Uh, yeah, I agree. And that's one of the the numerous very complicated situations that will happen. So we got that with the nuclear weapons, but we got it with all the military. Hmm. You know, um, I assume it would be nice if we didn't have any military, but we're going to have some. Hmm. So how do you decide? Because at the moment, it's UK-wide, and you've got different people with different skills, doing different jobs. You can't just say, right, all the people that were born in Scotland come back to our military. Because... We might not have all the expertise that we need yes. to do that. To so say that we get two Royal Navy ships, yes. whatever proportion it is, mm. if we just take all the Scottish people from the Royal Navy, they might not have all the skills and expertise to, to run a ship. And the same with, certainly, the, say, the BBC as well. Mm. You know, there's, there's so much integration in that, and there's other institutions uh, 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 the same. Uh, it's going to be a complicated isn't it?
1: There's a, there's a huge set of issues you just touched on there, which is about is about pan-British institutions and how you how you divide them, basically. And so that gets into from issues such as the armed forces, and then and then The timing of Scottish independence we would hope would happen when the war in Ukraine is over. But, you know, at the moment, we are in a very, very, you know, um, like new Cold War um, or hot war period, etc. And that has different consequences in terms of, like, you know, defence spending and so on. But you've got, as you said, institutions like the BBC and a whole host of things where you're creating Scottish independent organisations out of, out of British um, organisations. And it goes further than that. You've also got, and there's only one piece of research, public piece of research I can find on such a site in the book, uh, the amount of assets that the British state owns around the world are in the hundreds and hundreds of billion pounds. We're yeah. talking about embassies, we're talking about things that are not even identifiable, people have tried yeah. to make, that, that what the British state owns. And of course, Scotland has a claim to about, you know, eight and a half percent of that. So that, again, that that's independent of that economy I was talking about, that's offshore and things that people try to measure. There's a whole, there's only one piece of research on that trying to measure it, which I think is from the House of Commons Library, um, and it's just something that in negotiations Scotland can say, you know, we have a right to, you know, like we're not going to saw the Washington Embassy of the British State, you know, uh, uh, one tenth of it off, but you know. In principle, there's there's a percentage there, and that would be again that's recognised legally as um as a kind of you
0: know,
1: a, a, a legal appropriate call.
0: Uh, on your website, one of your recent articles is about what is Scotland's independence debate about, and what should it be about? Yes. So, what kind of things should we be properly discussing about Scottish independence? That, that is kind of like a
1: huge question in a way because I think, I think I think there's so many factors there I could try and summarize this very quickly is un- underneath Scotland's independence debate, there's the obvious question the obvious principle that actually there's majority a very significant majority of public opinion support for Scotland which is Scotland's right to decide its own future the, the Scottish people living here that Scottish people you know, means everyone that's living here um, yeah. is we have a collective right to decide our own future. Pro union opinion understands, uh, uh, really understands that, that is a powerful phrase with resonance. And in that sense, what I also argue is that, um, which some, some pro indie people don't quite like, Scotland is already in many respects quasi independent. It doesn't mean to say we are independent or going to become independent, but we are, are quasi independent in that, that Westminster in lots of ways has slipped off our radar of how we think about things. Um, obviously, it comes back with a crash at points and the way Scotland talks to itself um, and has public conversations is about Scotland, um, and so those are plus points that, that, that underpin the, the power and the drivers um, of independence, but obviously, obviously this is the point, again, i trying try and go over to independence lines, in the independence movement, to put it simply, there's two, two distinct strands, one is on the principle of independence, which brings part of independence opinion, people think Scotland, the principle, we are a nation, etc., but as a Another part of the independence movement, which is about independence as a means to an end, and that is a means to an end of a different society, fairer, making our choices, hopefully being more equal and egalitarian and so on. And we really need to understand the there's a, it's not a conflict, but there's a bit of tension between those two. And, and why they both matter is that the principle of independence on its own doesn't, and, and is never in a foreseeable future, going to get you to a convincing majority. People want To talk about the future Scotland that that we would create through independence. And that then has all sorts of kind of interesting angles in it, because you can never completely (laughs) create the future, you know, or a future independence in the here and now. You can only imagine some of it, et cetera, and the direction of travel. But that's a bit of a tension in in independence because, because some people just think the principle Scotland's a nation, why not? You know, the why not Scotland argument. I've personally never quite Liked why not argument just because there are actually around the world lots of places that are nations that are not independent you know there's lots of different ways of like organizing yourself as a society like you know Greenland's a nation um but Greenland is not an independent country at the moment it may end up independent because on a journey similar to Scotland you know Greenland left the European Union and yet remains a self-governing part of Denmark So there's just lots and lots of different arrangements because humans humans create different arrangements. And we are a nation, we're a historic nation, we have a right to self-determination and that's recognised by public opinion here. And I also say I've got a chapter on how we eventually get an independence referendum. If Scottish public opinion wants an independence referendum, Scottish public opinion, I think, it would express it in a variety of ways. We will get an independence referendum.
0: Yeah, well, um, just linking straight into that, on one of the... The, the the recent articles you got about independence and about democracy, you say that uh, we shouldn't have an independence referendum without Westminster agreement. But do you think we will have one sooner rather than later? So why, why 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 do we have to wait for Westminster approval? Well, it's
1: it's not so much waiting for Westminster approval. It's 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 there's a couple of things. One is, I mean, you have to take the nature of the SNP. The SNP were never going to have a, you know, whatever you want to call it, a referendum that's not, you know, anchored in by Scottish and UK government agreement. And secondly, it's also that um, there's been precedent created by 2014 by that, the the, the Edinburgh agreement that took place where they both recognised. And thirdly, there's to have a referendum that, that, you know, works. Don't go down the Catalonia route. I mean, Scotland is not Catalonia, Scotland didn't experience fascism out <laughs> dictatorship, etc. But but you know, Catalonia had a referendum where they, 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 the anti independence side boycotted it. If we had a referendum, that wasn't signed in and anchored in, there'd be more than likely a chance that no or part of the no constituency would just abstain and you end up with a, a referendum that doesn't matter. And I think I think I go, I go I, I would go much further than that in the sense that in my chapter on how we get an independence referendum. I, I had at point spoken to people in the UK, senior in the UK government, on on their attitude. And if you remember, I mean, Theresa May seems like an awful long time ago, you know. Now how many Tory prime ministers you have to go back to go? Like Theresa May said in 2017 when the Scottish Parliament voted on independence, she said, "Now is not the time," was her phrase. And what she meant by that was not no; she meant yep. it's a holding operation. And what I, I, I spoke to people um, in, in Downing Street at that point, and they, they were they were absolutely candid that they were saying no as a holding operation. And that if Scottish public opinion pushed and became, you know, for an independence referendum, Scotland would get an independence referendum. And the point being that, that as well, both the governments privately understood this between each other. Um, and so this isn't to say, like, British governments are great than What it says that when Scottish public opinion gets into position of wanting an independence referendum and consistently saying that, the UK government will be, I think, um, you know, it, it, we have to agitate for that and campaign for that. The UK government will be in no place to, to, for a period, um, oppose that. Because to make, to, this is an argument I made for years, to make independence synonymous with democracy, it's a catastrophic argument of the union. It basically undermines the whole logic of the union argument. And if they want to go there that long, they, they, they basically are making the case for independence. And there's lots of people who are you know not necessarily pro-independence who understand this. A person I cite in the book here at Kieran Martin was the lead negotiator for the UK government, for the UK government in 2014. He did a very important lecture last year, said that the union is digging its own, its own ending if they end up continually saying no to a Scotland that wants an independence referendum. Um, and so that that's one, one of my many takes. It's not to be sanguine of the nature of the system, but it's about the nature of the, what is democracy, what is the union, and if we push um, and become you know, a majority wanting an independence referendum, it will happen.
0: Yeah, excellent. Good. I think that is a very good point to end on. Thank you very much for, for talking to us and Gant, I've really enjoyed uh, speaking to you. So just to remind... Uh, people, the book is called Scotland Rising: The Case for Independence, right? By Jerry Hassan. And where can I buy my my copy of that book? That book is available. Scotland Rising: The
1: Case for Independence, published by Pluto Press. So it's available directly from Pluto Press. Just type in Jerry Hassan, Pluto Press, and up it will come, and they they, they direct to send you. And it's available in uh, from other you know social media outlets, obviously that sell books. And, um, and social media outlets that pay their taxes, um, and it's available <laughs> from bookshops as well.
0: I don't know who you're referring to there. <laughs> right, Jerry, thank you very, very much for that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody else will as well. A few quid keeps us going. Donate at paypal.me forward slash left.